Young, black, and widowed. And no, we're not talking about the usual classification of young widows. We're talking about millennials and Gen Z. That's right, 20-somethings and 30-somethings, like myself, who lost their spouse just as life seemed to be beginning. I'm your host, Azure Johnson Redman, Executive Director of the new nonprofit Young, Black, and Widowed Incorporated. Today, we're going to be talking with attorney Amanda Jelks. She owns an estate planning firm, and she's been practicing law for 10 years. She launched her firm five years ago and has had the honor of being selected as the best Black attorney in Chattanooga in 2020. Super Lawyers has picked her as a rising star for the last five years in a row, and her business was 2018 Emerging Business of the Year by the local Urban League. So, Amanda Jelks, tell me, what should a person do who is widowed when their spouse passes away, especially if they have kids? That is such a great question. And before I answer it, I have to do the most attorney-like thing that I'm going to do during this session and give my disclaimer. So I am an attorney. I am licensed in the state of Tennessee, also in the state of Georgia. Just because I am an attorney does not mean I am the attorney for any of the listeners uh, unless I have been retained to do so. So each state has their own very specific laws. My advice today is going to be based on uh, the laws of Tennessee and Georgia, and this is for educational purposes only. Thank you. Okay, now to your question, what should a person do if they have recently lost their significant other? And the answer is, it depends, which is the second most lawyer-like thing I will say today. It depends on whether or not the surviving spouse and the recently deceased spouse owned all of their assets jointly or if they had separate assets. So if your loved one that you have recently lost had a bank account that was just in his or her name or if they owned your house and it was just in their name and not in your name, there will be things that you have to do that are very different from what you would have to do if you all co-owned those things. Generally, when spouses co-own assets, cars, accounts, bank accounts, policies, houses, as long as those items were obtained together while you all were married, then there's nothing that you need to do. Most of the time, those assets will become entirely yours after your spouse passes away, as long as you all obtain them during the marriage. But if you and your spouse purchased a home together before you were actually married, that's not always, that that same principle does not apply. So if you bought it while you were married, there's usually nothing else that you need to do. But if you bought it together before you were married, then you may have to go through some sort of probate, which is the legal, it's a court proceeding where we do the legal transfer of assets from a deceased loved one to whomever their heirs or beneficiaries are under law. So that's for your jointly owned assets, your individually owned assets, transferring whatever they may have left behind to you and their children or whomever they listed as a beneficiary in a will. For you as the surviving spouse, something that you need to think about pretty soon after the loss of a loved one, especially if you have children, is putting together your own estate plan. A good estate plan will consist of a will, potentially a trust, a power of attorney for your financial decisions, a power of attorney for your health care decisions, and advanced care directives. And let's break down what all of that means. Let's start with powers of attorney. A power of attorney is a person that you give the legal authority to make decisions for you while you are alive but during a time in your life where you are not capable of making those decisions yourself. 
So you've been declared incompetent or incapacitated by a medical doctor. You will need someone, whether it's your parent, your friends, your neighbors, whomever, whoever you trust in your life, that has the authority to write checks on your bank account for your benefit or for the benefit of your children. So if you have a hard period in your life where you are in a coma or otherwise incapacitated, your mortgage still needs to be paid. And perhaps you have money in your checking account to pay that mortgage, but without a power of attorney, no one has the authority to access that money to make sure that your mortgage is paid or that your health care uh, expenses are paid or that your child's daycare is paid or tuition or whatever your normal expenses are. So power of attorney for finances is very important. You also need a power of attorney for your health care decisions. That person will decide what happens to your physical body while you're alive, but unable to make those decisions for yourself. So they will decide what sorts of medication you take, what treatment you receive, where you're at, your body is actually located. So do you go to a um, assisted living facility or do, which hospital do you go to? Do you go, do you stay at home and have caregivers come in and take care of you? And nobody likes talking about those things. And, and, you know, we hope that you would never be in that situation where the healthcare power of attorney would even matter, but it's always better to be prepared. So you, you need that as well. And I think um, when uh, my husband was actually passing away from lung cancer, having the healthcare power of attorney for our listeners out there was actually very helpful because he had all his wishes already laid out. So taking the steps to transition were much less stressful since everything was already designated and laid out. Yes, And we're talking about, you know, as the surviving spouse being, it's important that we also have that set up for ourselves and for the person who will be making those decisions for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of times spouses assume that because we are married, I have an automatic right to make those decisions for you. Oh, yeah. And that's so not true. You it is not that true. paperwork. And you can actually upload that paperwork at the hospital in your charts. It, it's a good idea to try and do that to our local hospital, for example, here is Erlanger. So within my chart system, I have my healthcare power of attorney set up so that it would make it easier for the person who would make decisions for me that is designated to just for it to be there, but always have a copy. But still, that is another great thing to do. But but keep going. Yes. So people assume that they have this automatic right that they don't have. And, you know, they start thinking about, well, when my mom went through this or my dad went through this, the doctors let them make the decisions. In most states, doctors have an option to allow the next of kin to make those decisions. And a lot of times doctors will exercise that option, but they don't exercise it whenever there are other people present who are contesting whatever decision you're trying to make. So if the decision is feeding tubes, if you have a surviving spouse saying, I want you to do everything humanly possible to keep my spouse alive, I want them to have a feeding tube, but the mother of the incapacitated person is of your spouse is they're saying, no, my son would not want that or my daughter would not want that. Do not give them a feeding tube or vice versa, whatever that looks like. Whenever you have spouse and mother or father-in-law not in agreement, oftentimes the doctors will say, there's no legal power of attorney here. I'm not making, I'm not doing anything until someone has the authority to make a decision for this incapacitated person. If they don't have a power of attorney, what happens then? Because in this scenario, the spouse is incapacitated. They're not in their right mind, so they can't sign a power of attorney. It's too late. What happens? Yeah. So what happens in that situation? 
is people end up going to court in an emergency proceeding, uh, and they either end up applying for a conservatorship or a guardianship. Different states will interchange those words to have a court appoint someone to essentially be the power of attorney. Now, we call it guardian or conservator, but it's essentially a court-appointed power of attorney. The it's most, just not what you want to have to do. You don't um, want to have to do that. First of all, you don't have to go to court with your family literally no. at that time. <laughs> you you really don't. And it's incredibly expensive. It is yes. incredibly expensive. And the court will oftentimes bring in attorneys that you didn't hire because they want to make sure that mother-in-law is represented and they want to make sure that the incapacitated spouse is represented and that whatever you're trying to do is really in their best interest. So they want additional sets of legal eyes on what's happening to make sure that the the right decision is reached by the judge. And And at a time where moments and seconds are of the essence. That's right. And, And once it goes before a judge, you lose control. Like, People think when I say the word guardianship or conservatorship, that that means I'm going to go get the court to appoint me as my spouse's conservator or power of attorney. But that's not how that works. Once it goes before a judge, the judge is not appointing you just because you're the spouse. They're appointing the person that they believe will make the best decisions for your loved one. And sometimes it's not you. In Tennessee, in our specific county, Hamilton County, our judge will not appoint someone who has a felony, period. And it does not matter if the felony was when you were a freshman in high school, um, in uh, college 30 years ago. They're not appointing you. You're disqualified. They also will not appoint someone who has a has filed for bankruptcy within the last seven to 10 years. And so you, wow. you just don't want to be in that situation. And, you know, the reason behind that is they don't want to appoint you as a decision maker over someone's mm-hmm. money if you have filed bankruptcy. But if, exactly. you, if you just do the power of attorney documents, you can appoint anyone you want. And it's such a streamlined process. It's it is. So, yes, you're talking about difficult things, but I think my how everything would have happened would have been so much harder if we hadn't made and distributed those the paperwork within the family so yeah. they knew everyone's wishes we were very we were planners so Good. long like at age <laughs> in our early 20s we were wow. planners so not even at the time of or anything so but if you're not in that situation it can be difficult so tell us more yeah so the other important document that kind of goes hand in hand with your healthcare power of attorney is your advanced care directives. For a long time, people in the legal community have called those living wills, but every everyone that's not a lawyer often confused the term will with living will, and it's just hard to figure out what's what. So now we call them advanced care directives. An advanced care directive deals with end-of-life medical decisions. So your healthcare power of attorney can make any decision about your body in the world except for the decisions you make in advance for yourself. Oftentimes, the advanced care directive will cover things like feeding tubes and CPR, life support, etc. Most states consider advanced care directives so very important that they provide them for free on their state government website uh, so that you can download them and have them witnessed or notarized or whatever your state requires. Lots of people get a big lump in their throat when they're trying to fill out those things, but it's really important because going back to what we were talking about earlier, if you have spouse, surviving spouse, and you have mother-in-law and they're Mm -hmm. disputing, do we give a feeding to, It is so easy for surviving spouse to pull out this couple page document and say, look, your son or your daughter wanted this. They initialed right here. These are not my wishes for them. These are their wishes for themselves. Exactly. You you know, mother and mother-in-law may may fight with you all day. But if if her child spoke for himself or herself, then then that it is what it is. And I fell into that uh, category of 
it actually providing everyone peace that he did not want to be on a very long-term life support situation. And having that written out was so helpful. So I would recommend it for the surviving spouse as well as what we're talking about too. It Having it written out really just took away a lot of stress and grief and a lot of things. So it's it, it's really it's really it brings peace to the situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and to take that a step further, it keeps families from eternally fighting. Yes. If you you know, if you took your mother-in-law's child off of life support and she did not agree with that decision, especially if you have children, you're going to be connected to that family forever. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. want you don't want to have a bad taste when you take your children to visit or when they come to pick up your children, just to keep relationships intact. Advanced care directives are ideal for everyone. Literally living it in a good way. Uh, not yeah. the same, not exactly what you're saying, but I am saying that it really kept the family together because we had planned for these things and done these documents in advance. And that is why very shortly after my husband passed away, I immediately went to my lawyer and had all of these things done again. And I think Amanda's getting there, (laughs) Uh, but we're going to talk about that too. So that in the event of something happening to me, that the person who's designated can also have that peace and it not be a thing. So go, keep calling them in. This is That's amazing. right. That's exactly right. So we've talked about healthcare power of attorney, advanced care directives, and financial powers of attorney. Now let's talk about your will. You need a will to appoint someone to care for your children in the event that you pass away. Many states have default designations for who's next in line if mom and dad are both no longer living for a minor child. In Tennessee, if you don't have a will and both of your children's parents pass away with and neither had a will, then the default here is that the children go to the mother's parents whichever or both, is willing and able to care for the child. If mom's parents are not willing or able to care for the child, and it doesn't matter if they're, if those parents are divorced or still together, if neither of them are willing or able to care for the child, then the law says that the child goes into the custody of the father's parents, whichever or both of them is both willing and able to care for the child. If none of those people, well, well, let's start with what if you don't want that to happen? What if if uh, your parents are elderly or they're not responsible or they didn't do a really great job as parents for you and you don't want them to become the caregivers for your children? The only way to make sure that your best friend or your sister or your brother-in-law or whomever becomes the caregiver for your children is to put it in a will. Otherwise, Besides the both sets of grandparents, nobody else is in that line of who gets the child next. Tennessee law only applies for mom's parents, dad's parents, and then it's the state will have to make a determination on who becomes the caregiver for the child. And that can take a lot of time putting the child literally in physical limbo. Yes. And and I think about it through the child's eyes. What is it like to lose one parent? And now you've lost both parents and you don't know immediately who you're going to be with now. Like the child doesn't know because the adults don't know because there is no will. I know that every mother listening and every father listening would want to make sure that at a minimum, if their child loses both parents, they have some level of certainty when they can say, you know, Aunt Veronica is now going to care for you. That's where you're going. Um, so the child knows and the adults know just to, to give them some amount of assurances or peace about the situation. 
I think you were probably about to mention that the person who has the children, a different person can be the person who decides the finances. That's for exactly that child. right. So and that's in a we... situation that there's survivor benefits, which can be very significant. It would be good to keep that in mind too. So one person could, family member could be over the finances and the other person could be the caregiver. That's exactly right. So let's let's hone in just a little bit more on the guardianship decisions. What I see a lot of people doing when we start talking about who would raise your children if you can't, they think of the people that they like the most. But it's really important that you take additional things into consideration, like do they raise their children the way you raise your child? Do they both have the same spiritual or religious beliefs that you have? Are they good with managing their own money, let alone managing an inheritance that your child would receive? So there's just there's additional factors that you take into consideration when appointing a guardian for your child. And I'm a firm believer that you should always have two people in, in terms of you have a primary guardian. But if we have an alternate, just in case something happens to the primary guardian, just so you don't find Definitely. yourself needing to update these documents every time you blink because someone is incapacitated or they themselves have passed away. Now let's list those people out. Yes. Now let's talk about the, the inheritance that your child receives. Many people think, you know, their, their first inclination is I don't have anything. So that doesn't really matter. But then when I mention the fact that you own your home, you know, most people, Mm -hmm. their wealth is in their house. Well, then they're like, oh, okay. well, I I have lived in that house for quite a while. I've paid down that mortgage. There is some equity there. Property rates are going up and so forth. And you may have a life insurance policy. Maybe you have a retirement account with the company you work for, et cetera. It is almost always my recommendation that whomever has physical custody of the child not also have sole access to the child's bank account, the child's inheritance. And the reason is checks and balances, keeping everybody mm-hmm. honest, making sure that this, that good decisions are being made for the child. So just for me personally, if something were to happen to both me and my husband and my children end up in the custody of my mother, I have no doubt that my mother would do her absolute best to raise my three children. No doubt whatsoever. But I also know that my mom is grandma and grandma likes to spoil kids and grandma feels (laughs) sorry for kids because they've lost mom and dad. And so what is grandma going to do? Grandma is going to take the kids to Disney World three times a year and they're going in five years. There will be no inheritance left. Well, I know that I, I don't I want my children to have something left when they become an adult. And I don't, you know, while I certainly want them to be able to go to Disney World or, you know, on an annual vacation, I just don't want her to be irresponsible with the money. And so perhaps I set up a trust, a child's trust that gives her monthly payments for for just the day-to-day expenses of my children. Maybe we do, you know, just off the top of my head, $700 per child, per month. And that covers the additional space they take up in her home. Perhaps she has to get a new house because she lives alone and now she's got three kids with her. Uh, It covers the extra utilities, lights, food, water, gas, et cetera, that the children use, the transportation expenses, et cetera. And then maybe I also give her the right to ask for additional funds from the trust. And and we appoint someone to be over the trust, like my uncle or my best friend or whomever. This is the person that is just simply writing the checks. Um, Mom can say, hey, kids are going on spring break. I'd like to take them to Florida to visit our extended family. And the person holding the the checkbook, the trustee, has the discretion to say yes or no to that. But I can also, in addition to the $700 per month per child that she gets, I can require the person holding the checkbook to pay for certain additional expenses if they come up. So if my child has a medical expense that is not covered by uh, health insurance, they can, they have to write the check for that. 
if my mother decides that the public schools are just whatever school she's zoned for is just not enough for my children and she wants to place them in private school, then the trust has to pay for that or what have you. So the sky's the limit with trust for what they can do, what they have to do. It's just all about making sure that you talk to your attorney so they fully understand what your goals are to make sure that once the child is an adult or of a mature age, whether that's 18 or 25 or 30 or whatever you want it to be, that there's something left over for them. That's wonderful. I learned a lot. There's a lot of things I didn't know about that you could uh, have set up in a uh, in a trust. There just seems to be so many different options. So it's always great to have those options. Yes. Now let's let's talk about one other thing that people often overlook, and it's beneficiary designations. So everyone knows that on a life insurance policy, you list beneficiaries, and the beneficiary is who gets that account. You can also list beneficiaries on your bank account, on mm-hmm. your uh, retirement account, on investments, on annuities, on stocks, you know, et cetera. And it makes it so policies. much easier if it's yes. already set up that way, because it, when it's absolutely. not, it is a process. Yes, it is. So beneficiary designations should be as simple as you providing the retirement, let's say Fidelity 401k company, you provide them with a copy of the loved one's death certificate and your driver's license, and they issue you a check within a matter of weeks. When you have bank accounts and so forth that do not have beneficiary designations, then you end up going through some form of probate, a court process, in order to get access to those accounts Nobody that's in probate enjoys being in probate. It is not a fun and happy place. It's not. And so we we would like to, whomever you leave behind, to have to do the bare minimum to get what you intended for them. And, you know, really the worst thing to take through, through, through probate are bank accounts. People mm-hmm. call my office at least mm-hmm. weekly, at least once a week, and they say, my mother or my spouse left, yes. had a separate account where they kept their fund money and they had $800 in that account. And my name's not on that account and the bank won't give it to me. Can you make them give it to me? Well, I cannot make them do anything. The only person that can make them cooperate is a judge and specifically mm-hmm. the probate judge. But when we look at smaller amounts, like $800 or $1,500, it actually costs more to go to probate than to get that money out. That's right. Do you have an estimate of how much probate costs? So it depends. And that's going to vary widely by state. Well, then we won't worry about that. And (laughs) in most states like Tennessee, we have there's three different types of probate and it depends on what they left behind and, you know, what type of asset it was and what it's worth Mm -hmm. and so forth. But yet it varies widely by state. But $1,500, $2,500 account, it's not worth it for you to have to pay a lawyer. Yeah, Yeah, I'd say it's a few grand. So, and then also you have to come up with that few grand, right, to make, to go to pro, to see the Lord, to go to pro, right, all that jazz. Yeah. When you don't have access to the account you're trying to get access to. So That's luckily right. I have not had to personally go through probate, but I've known several people who have. And yeah. if you can avoid it, which is why even as surviving spouses, we have to make sure our paperwork is together for the good of our family. And I think we're under so much stress that we forget that even though we just went through going through all the paperwork and making everything happen, that we then have to turn around and then prepare again for what could potentially happen too. It's very difficult, but I, I really employ every person listening, widows and widowers, you know, try and try and get this stuff done. So you know, your families can be more at peace and have an easier time. Yes, absolutely. So we love beneficiary designations. They're easy. If some, you know, people come to me regularly and they say there's this $1,500 account. I hate telling them that it's not worth it 
for them to go yes. through probate. And so that money sits. Eventually, that money ends up in the hands of the state's unclaimed funds department. Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, I can just get it out of there. But guess what you got to nope. do to get money out of there? Go through probate. So this money, exactly. this money eternally sits. And and while while a $1,500 account is not worth it, the cost it's going to take for you to go through probate, anybody listening could use an extra $1,500. Especially when someone has just passed away. Yes. I yes. mean, it takes, it honestly takes more than that to cremate a person. So yeah, it's, it's a very, very dire situation. Avoid yes. probate court, get your paperwork done today. Yes. Now, now let's talk about when, so you're already, you're the surviving spouse in this scenario mm-hmm. and you have the people that you would want to inherit your life insurance policy in your accounts mm-hmm. are your children usually, Yeah. but your children are under the age of 18. Yep. It is not a good idea to list minors as beneficiaries <sighs> on anything. No, let's is yeah. Oh, let me please let reiterate me that again. <laughs> so it it is it is not a good idea to list minor children as beneficiaries on anything. Not your life insurance policy. Not your bank account. Not your retirement account. Not anything. So who do you list? You list their trust. When you create the trust for the child, the trust itself will have a legal name. You list the trust. Let me tell you what happens when you list a minor. In my state, Tennessee, if a minor inherits more than $10,000, now your house is worth more than $10,000 at a minimum. If if a minor child inherits more than $10,000, there has to be a separate court proceeding, and this is a guardianship. So now you've already got your probate court proceeding. Yeah. Now we have to do a second one in the guardianship court. It's not even the same place. We got to go to probate court. We have to go to guardianship court. And the court will appoint a guardian to manage your child's money. That guardian is not who you like. It's who the judge likes. But even then, the preference in Hamilton County is that your child's inheritance be paid into the court and the court holds your child's inheritance until your child is 18 years old, at which point they issue them a check. And it doesn't matter. It matter if your child is two years old or if your child is 17 and a half. The Mm -hmm. court will hold that money until they turn 18. So when I tell people that their first inclination is, well, that's not that bad. I know that the money's going to be there when they turn 18. But think about your caregiver. Mm -hmm. Who's caring for your child? Is that person going to get $500 a month to help them with the day-to-day expenses of your child? And the answer is no, they're not. The court is holding that money. If our children are being raised by our loved ones, we do not want our children to be a financial burden on those people. They've already uprooted their entire life to add an additional child or two additional children or maybe more. We don't want our kids to present a financial burden to them. But if the court's holding the money, That person doesn't have access, easy access to the funds that they need. Now, some courts, depending on where it is, they will allow the guardian to write a letter to the judge and say, I need money for school supplies. Here's, you know, here's the receipt where I paid it. Will you please reimburse me? And when the judge gets around to reading that letter, they will decide whether or not it is reasonable and they may issue payment. But you don't want your guardian, your caregiver for your children to have to go through that. The only way you prevent that is by either not list, either listing the child's trust as the beneficiary or you list someone else. Now, some people get the idea that they're just going to let, if I'm going to let my mom care for my children, if I'm gone, then I'm going to make my mom the beneficiary. That's not a good idea either. So really the only good answer here is your child needs a trust if they're under 18. And the beneficiaries on your account need to be the trust. 
It does not need to be the guardian. If you say, I want my mom to care for my kids, and so I'm going to make my mom my beneficiary on my life insurance policy, the life insurance company is going to write a check made payable to my mom. And that is going to be my mom's money. What mm -hmm. if by the time I'm gone, my mother is disabled and in a nursing home? Does that change? Yes. No, the life insurance company is giving my mom a check for my $100,000 life insurance policy or whatever it is. And my mom doesn't even have my kids. Mm -hmm. So so it's not a good idea. And heaven forbid the beneficiary go to the nursing home. That's exactly right. So if that if whoever you listed, if you list your parent and your parents in a nursing home or on Medicaid, state government insurance to pay for their health care. Well, now not only it's not even going to the nursing home, they're going to be kicked off of their yes. Medicaid. And now the government is going to say, hey, mom, you just inherited a hundred thousand dollars. Pay for your own nursing home. And then she will. And then, you know, a few months, a few, a few months later, when it's all gone, then they'll let her reapply for Medicaid. And that, but what about your child and their caregiver and the money they needed to write? They don't have it. So really, the only good option here is if you have a minor child, you need a trust for that minor child. And the beneficiary needs to be the trust not the child. That is the only way to ensure that the inheritance actually helps the person raising your child. That That's really the only way, way to make sure. And I think too, um, that you got to kind of think through the whole 18 year old thing as well, because I do know of someone who left everything and then their 18 year old suddenly had access to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And maybe at 18, they're not quite able to make the best life decisions. So yeah. you can also kind of spread it out a little bit and <laughs> just yeah. be mindful of that. Think about your 18-year-olds out there and think, well, what would happen if that's they right. came into a lot of money? And that's also at a time where they might have been thinking about college, which is great, but you don't want them to say, well, maybe I don't need college thinking that a certain amount will last their whole life when yes. really realistically it'd be best to, you know, manage these finances in a different way. Yep. The, I, I would never recommend giving it to an 18 year old either. <laughs> and it's, it's simply just, you know, think about where you were at 18. I if know you had know, inherited <laughs> $10,000. What would you have to show for it a few months later? let alone something more than $10,000. And, um, right. and from a college perspective, if your 18-year-old has mm -hmm. a $50,000 inheritance, are they going to qualify for financial need-based scholarships? And the answer is no, they're not going to because they've got a large bank account. But if that money is sitting in the custody of a trust, that they do not hold the checkbook to because you have appointed your sister as the trustee, that's not really their money for purposes of qualifying for a scholarship. So a lot of times hurt the kids yeah, and it doesn't right. hurt the person that cared for them. That's exactly right. And so a lot of times people will say, don't give my child their inheritance outright. Don't give them the checkbook until they have reached a more mature age, like 25 or 30 or 35. Sometimes people will say, give them a third of it at 25, a third at 30 or a third at 35. But again, mm -hmm. the sky's the limit there. It can look any way you want to, as long as you and your estate planning attorney are united, you get on the same page about this. Now, when you talk about making a trust, Basically, it kind of sounds like a bank account. Now, hold on. I know that's erroneous, but it sounds like, well, how can I make a trust when it hasn't happened yet? How do I make an account when it hasn't happened yet? Is a trust just like a will, which is just a piece of paper that then becomes full, that then money goes into? Yes. Or is it an actual bank account and that's waiting for something to go wrong? So there's there's dozens of different types of trust, but the one that we're talking about is known as a contingent trust. Contingent meaning that it will only ever actually be created 
if certain contingencies are not met. So we may say in the will, if I pass away and my child is under the age of 18, then I want the trustee, whoever you name, to go open up a trust account. So trust sounds like this big fancy thing, but it's really just a bank account with rules. And we set the rules. That's what we do in the will is we set the rules for the trust. When can checks be written? How much can they be written for if you want to be that specific? How often can they be written, etc.? So contingent trust is contingent upon something. My child being under 18, my child being under 30. If you pass away and your child is 46, well, that trust never actually has to come into existence because your child was not under the age of 30, like you said in the documents. So this is a contingent trust for a child. Gotcha. And then can that be done in addition? I mean, not addition to, but if you already have all of your wills done, can you just add a trust or asking for a friend? Um, (laughs) can you just add a trust or does it have to be like tucked into the other documents? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So the trust lives in the will because your will said your will has beneficiaries and your will likely says, I want my children to be my beneficiaries, but we just talked about children don't need to be the beneficiaries. The beneficiary needs to be the trust, which we create in the will. So if you have, if someone has a will that gives everything to their minor children, it needs to be redone because we don't want minors listed as beneficiaries. Well, I'm more worried about my mom who's getting close to, um, you know, retirement age and things could happen in that scenario. It actually had not crossed my mind that if she were to receive everything from me passing away, that that would then stop her health etc. and all that jazz and actually become a problem. And then all of those funds would go into her. Well, she's very selfless. So, but basically her, it could go into her health needs and she might not really be able to, to do anything against it. And then we're in this it's same situation. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, and that applies for people also that are, maybe they're not in a nursing home, so they're not on Medicaid, but perhaps they are disabled and they receive social security disability. We don't want these people to be kicked off of this benefit that they're going to need for the rest of their life for an inheritance that is not enough to, to supplement what that benefit would have been. But of course, in what we're talking about today is that that inheritance really wasn't even intended for them. It was intended for the children, but now they need it because they no longer have their government assistance and once you say, I want my mom to be my beneficiary, that money is hers. And so if she decides to keep it, nobody in the world can make her do different. And of course, I know, I know your mom would not do that, but just Mm -hmm. saying. Yeah. And then um, what is that thing where a person, when they get to a certain age, if they go into the nursing home, if five years prior, they've, they've given their home, I guess, to like, their daughter or son, per se, then the nursing home doesn't take that house. Does that make yeah. sense? Yes, absolutely. So that what has is to- that thing? Because a lot of widows and widowers ask me about that, too. Yeah. So that's what we call a Medicaid look back period. And that five years, I think that's pretty standard across the board. But I do need to to add the, the disclaimer there that it may it may differ by state. OK, but that's true. For us in Tennessee, it's also true for those in Georgia that when a person applies for Medicaid, so hypothetically, mom receives the inheritance, a $100,000 life insurance policy. We intended for mom to use that for her grandchildren because their mother and father have passed away. Mom decides, I sister has the children. I'm just going to give, I'm going to do right. I'm going to give the money to sister to take care of the children. Four years from that day, mom needs to go into a nursing home because she has fallen ill or she has developed dementia. And now mom's power of attorney or mom is is doing the paperwork to get government assistance. Nobody can afford to pay out of pocket for these nursing homes. In our area, good nursing homes 
or assisted living facilities cost six, seven, eight thousand dollars a month. And no, and that nobody can afford that for a long, long term period of time. And so mom applies for Medicaid insurance. They do this look back. They comb through mom's financial records. They're looking through her real estate records. They're looking through her bank records, her 401k records, all of her financial records. And they're trying to find out, did mom give away something that she could have sold and use the money to pay for her own nursing home care? If the answer is yes, then mom will not get her nurse, her Medicaid insurance when she needs it. So they find in, in the record, combing through the records, mom wrote a check for $100,000 to her daughter-in-law. And mom says, oh, that was for her to care for, for my grandchildren. She was appointed as the caregiver in their parents' will. They don't care. Mom could have used that $100,000 to pay for her own nursing home care for, you know, several months. And so now they penalize mom and they say, we'll give you Medicaid insurance after you have spent $100,000 on your own nursing home care. Then you will qualify. But mom literally doesn't have that $100,000 anymore to spend. And so mom ends up never getting the Medicaid insurance she needs. It's just overall, all around, not a good idea to leave. So put... So put everything in their trust to prevent that. But also, don't they need to give someone their home or something like that before they so that that they're so that they don't lose their home if they have to go into a nursing home? No, you cannot do that. So people do that. People do it all the time and they get penalized. People will say mom's mom has just got her diagnosis for dementia today. She's still in her right mind. Twenty three hours of the 24 hours in a day. But within a matter of time, whether it's months or years, mom will need to go into a nursing home. Let's start planning. Mom puts her house in her daughter's name. It's the same thing as the $100,000 life insurance policy we talked about. Now mom has given her house to daughter and nursing uh, Medicaid when when she applies for years, four and a half years, whatever it is, four months, four years, whatever. Whenever she applies for Medicaid, they're going to look through her property records and they will see that she signed a deed to her home over to her child. Well, but if it had been more than five years. If it had been more than five years, it would be fine. If it had been less than five years, it would not be fine. However, that's not a good idea ever. So really what we're talking about is people trying to cheat the system and it doesn't work. It does not work. So let's say 10 years ago, mom signed her house over to her children because mom knew Her mother was in a nursing home. Her grandmother was in a nursing home. Her great-grandmother was in a nursing home. Stakes are high that mom is going to need a nursing home too. So to avoid Medicaid having an interest in her home, she signs her home over to her children. She's beat the five-year clock. She did it 10 years in advance. What's the issue? Well, the issue is that her son has an unpaid medical debt himself, or her daughter has an unpaid credit card, or perhaps one of her children had an eviction and they hadn't paid their landlord in full, or they forgot to pay their car insurance this month or did not have it at all, and they got into a wreck, someone was injured and they are sued. Now, the people whose names she's put on the house have creditors of their own, And if a judgment goes down against one of those children, that creditor has an interest in that house. And so now mom, so now you haven't cheated this. So cheating the system doesn't work. There is, there is one way to do this right. And it's with a proper estate plan. Mom needs an estate planning attorney. Mom can transfer her house out of her name into a trust. That would be a okay. The trust, the trust owns the house. 
The trust is not going to get into a car wreck. The trust is not going to owe a landlord back rent. The trust is not going to be on child support or have alimony. So, So there's ways to do this, but the only proper way to do it to make sure that you don't end up in one of those situations, which happen every day, uh, is to to work with an estate planning attorney to do it right because cheating the so system always comes back to bite you. The children, the children, they need to have their trust. And then, if you're looking at your parents who are probably, you know, getting elderly, they also need to have their own trust for their homes and assets too. So we all just need to do estate planning. <laughs> That's exactly right. As That's soon as right. possible and contact someone to get it all done so that we don't, um, you know, so that we have everything laid out. And once the house and everything and all the assets are and stuff for an elderly person are in a trust, then what happens when the person needs to go to a nursing home? So it depends on what type of trust because there's dozens. We have specific Medicaid planning trust, which would be ideal for someone who has a higher than likely chance of ending up in a nursing home. When people pass away, so you've already been, mom has already been approved for Medicaid. She's in a nursing home. Things are fine. Mom passes away. Medicaid has the right to place a lien on mom's home and ask to be paid back for whatever money they spent on, on her care. So if mom was in a nursing home for two years before she passed away and they spent, I don't know, $40,000 on her care. Now they have a right to put a lien on the house, whatever real estate she owned and say, we want this sold to be paid back our $40,000 or her children can pay the $40,000 and keep the house. To avoid that from happening, mom needs a specific type of trust. And that that type of trust is often, it it just depends on how likely it is that mom's going to need nursing home care. The issue with that type of trust, it's called an irrevocable trust. So all the documents we've talked about today, powers of attorney, wills, contingent trusts for minor children, all of those can be changed at any point. If you decide in five years you want to undo it or, or add to it or change some things about it, you can always do that the very next day if you want to forever and ever irrevocable trusts are the only way to get around the medicaid issues when it comes to what happens when a parent dies and a lien being placed on their home but the thing that people don't like about irrevocable trust is that you can't change them once you set them up it it exists and we we are not taking your house out of the trust it exists Um, Now, that doesn't mean that you can't sell the house, but it does mean that the trust owns the money from the sale if you do it. So we we have a very detailed, long, extensive conversation with people that are considering Medicaid trust. And, And for some people, the ones that know that they're headed towards nursing home care or more than likely are down the line, it's it's important. Um. It's an important discussion to have, but I do want to say one other thing before our time is up today. We've talked about lots of planning techniques and I've told you, you know, the worst case scenarios that I've seen and the way to prevent those things from happening and so forth. And so now our listeners have an idea. We need a will. We need a trust for our children. We need these powers of attorney, these advanced care directives, et cetera. I have to, the next thing that people do, and you know, it's in another attempt to, well, I I won't say that, but the next thing that that people do is, I bet I can just find these forms online. Oh, no, 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 (laughs) no. Find a professional. (laughs) Please don't don't do that. These documents are highly technical and very complex documents that require a law degree to put into place. You know, not only have I seen people pull them off the internet, but they will also go to non-attorneys to have them prepared. Like I have a client who recently lost her husband. They have a five-year-old child. They thought they were prepared. Their accountant prepared the documents. Well, that's illegal. That's unauthorized practice of law. And those Mm -hmm. those documents are trash. They're not worth 
the paper they're written on. So it's, it's so important that you work with an attorney licensed in your state who normally prepares these documents. The other bad thing is when people go to general practitioners or they go to, you know, attorneys that do every type of law under the world, you, no, you, you need, need a specialist. specialization. You, you need yeah. someone that does, that can do this in their sleep. They eat, sleep and breathe this because a, a criminal lawyer, you know, your cousin's best friend's <laughs> daughter's boyfriend, right, preparing right. these documents for you is almost as bad as just getting a form off the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, so the downside and people are like, oh, you know, of course, attorneys would say that because they just want to make more money. Well, you don't have to hire me. We've got listeners from all over the country. Most of you can't hire me because I'm only licensed in Tennessee and Georgia. But the most unfortunate thing about hire getting the documents offline, letting a non-lawyer prepare them or um, having a non-specialist, an attorney that doesn't specialize in estate planning, preparing these documents. The most unfortunate thing is that you will never know that they were not, they didn't accomplish what you wanted. So I get, I have the unfortunate opportunity to regularly tell people your mom's will is not valid under Tennessee law. This document doesn't accomplish what you think it does. In fact, this document says something you would never even imagine it says. And just because, well, we, I got 50 witnesses that can testify that mom meant for it to say this, that doesn't matter. Our probate judge says every year he does a um, educational seminar every year. It's actually coming up next week. And he tells us us attorneys every year, I don't care what they can say. Mom said if mom wanted it, mom would have put it in a legal document and she didn't. So we're not making any assumptions. The most unfortunate thing, if you don't follow my advice and have a special estate planning specialist prepare these documents is that you won't be here. For them, for the attorney to say these documents are not valid. Your loved ones will have a false sense of security that your documents are in order and that you have a plan and they will have a false sense of peace that things will be okay. And when they go to an estate planning attorney, they will be told that these documents don't mean anything. There's not actually a plan. Your child's entire inheritance is going to sit in the court's bank account where it does not even draw any real significance over what your checking account or savings account does until they are adults. Your child does not have guardians appointed for them. And now we have to figure out who's going to raise your child. The stakes are high. Who's going to take care of your baby? How is your child's inheritance going to be managed? Because you can save a few hundred dollars by printing them off of the internet does not, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. So I have to emphasize you need to see a specific estate planning attorney in your area to help you prepare these documents. And I would definitely agree. Definitely agree. Always seek a professional. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I know that's answered so many questions. We'll have to have you on again to discuss even more things to help people understand what do I do now? Because it's very inundating to hear it all when you're in the thick of it. Yeah, I completely understand. I'm so glad we were able to have this conversation. And, uh, you know, I, I hate that people... The thing that I dislike about what I do for a living is people losing their loved ones. And within days, they're usually sitting in my office completely heartbroken. And I have to, you know, give them a list of things that they need to do now. And, you know, what I would love to say to people when they come to me and they say, my house is in my husband's name. The mortgage is due on the first of the month and the bank account is in my husband's name and I don't have access to it. How do I pay my mortgage? I would like to be able to say, don't worry about it. Here's his or her will. They've already made a plan. We can. It, it's going to be OK. Give me just a little bit of time to get us before the probate judge or better yet. We don't have to go through probate. There's nothing you need to do. I'd much rather say that any day. Then you say, know, let's, let's here's the conference things. Yeah. Here's a conference call that we're going to get on to get everything set up. Yeah. And we're going to take care of you. That's so much more calming and peaceful than having uh, 
giant runaround and also trying to do that while working and grieving and stuff. So yes. again, that was a wonderful tip that you gave mm -hmm. us last, but are there anything else that you had lined up that you were going to talk with us um, about? No, that's absolutely everything. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk to your listeners. And I hope the information was was useful and that they will not delay and apply it. And nobody likes thinking about these things. But, you know, once you get your plan in place, it's done. And you can live your life a little easier knowing that when something inevitably happens, hopefully a very, very long time from now that you have a plan in place and uh, that your loved ones will, will be okay. Thank you so much, Amanda. This has been absolutely amazing. And for all of our listeners out there, do remember that Young, Black, and Widowed is actually available every single day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our number is 423-401-9274. While we never talk about a person's exact finances and exact private personal information ever, what we can do is say it would be great to find an, a fully, um, a, what, not, a, not accredited, that's the wrong word, but a, a, a real estate planning attorney. So we are here if you have questions, general questions about what to do now. And this has been our episode with our wonderful attorney, Amanda Jelks, who explained the basics of what to do in your law, through law. Um, so thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on again. Perfect. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Join our community through our nonprofit. It's free to call, text, email, or chat with a peer volunteer daily. Just visit our website, youngblackwidow.org 